Hi, and welcome to Imperfect Utopias, based out of the UCL Global Governance Institute. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Today, we will be discussing topics ranging from climate change to capitalism with Dr. Mark Maslin. Dr. Maslin is a professor of climatology at University College London. His areas of scientific expertise include causes of past and future global climate change and its effects on the global carbon cycle, biodiversity, rainforests and human evolution. He also works on monitoring land carbon sinks using remote sensing and ecological models and international and national climate change policies. In addition to advisory positions with the Global Cool Foundation, the Sopria Stereo Group and the Cheltenham Science Festival Advisory Committee, Dr. Maslin has written eight books and over 30 articles. His popular book, Climate Change, A Very Short Introduction by Oxford University Press is now in its third edition and has sold over 40,000 copies. Mazin was also a co-author of the seminal Lancet report, Managing the Health Effects of Climate Change, and the Lancet review paper on the health links between population, development, and climate change. All right, this is great. So we've been wanting to get an interdisciplinary climatologist to come in to talk to us, and uh, someone who's really making those connections between geology, governance, climate science, and you're really one of the leading voices, I think, advancing that discussion, Mark. So we're delighted to have you here for our first podcast. Uh, Perhaps just to begin, you could tell us a little bit about your background, um, what you're working on here at UCL, uh, just set the stage for for this conversation. So my background is in sort of physical geography, and I then moved into looking at past climates. And through that work, I really was interested in how climate changes, what, what are the forcing factors? And that then slowly moved me into looking at how humans impact climate. And so the way I sum up my career now is I look at climate change both in the past, the present and the future. And the nice thing is, and I'm very glad you've invited me because I I don't see disciplinary boundaries. Colleagues of mine see these boundaries and won't stray. I'm completely opposite. I will do something on the economy. I will do something on sort of like conflict. I will do something on hardcore science. And I also then will quite happily go back and work on early human evolution. So thinking about climate change over time, past, present, future, the scientists predicted in as early as 1982 that by this time, the early onset effects of climate change would be undeniable. They'd be just out there. We'd be able to see them. And I think it's not hard to to, to find these planetary distress signals from methane fountains uh, through to the rainforests burning in Australia and so on. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a personal story about the first time that you saw with your own eyes the sort of early onset effects of climate change beyond the graphs, beyond the data. I think for me, the first time that it went beyond the science and it actually impacted me personally was the heat wave in London in 2003. So in 2003, the heat wave in northern Europe was so extreme that we lost possibly 70,000 people 
who died early. So these were uh, elderly people that, because of the stress of the heat, uh, they passed away during the July and August heat wave. And it was that moment that I realised that heat waves and particularly extreme climate events were real and were going to impact uh, normal people, even in countries such as the United Kingdom. You mentioned the London 2003 heat wave in your Google Talk in 2017. Uh, you spoke about the threshold of certain areas, as in the same temperature in, in a city in uh, Western Africa would not be received at the same kind of loss of life. Do you believe that London as a city has risen its threshold and how? So I think the key thing is to realise that each society has its uh, coping range. So, for example, in London, we can cope with temperatures up to 26, 27 degrees. We can cope with zero. And, uh, and what's interesting in London, if you have this white fluffy stuff called snow, suddenly the whole city panics and people go into sort of like panic mode and children aren't allowed to go to school. Whereas in Toronto, yeah, if it gets to two metres, then they start to worry. So, again, it's about what the actual resilience is for each city. Uh, or society. And again, that's really important. And it's about moving that baseline. So what's really interesting is the most loss of life that occurred in the 2003 heatwave was in northern France, and particularly in Paris. And they had a systematic change in all their health leadership because of that. They were so shocked by that loss that they completely changed. They changed everything about the health system, their advice to people, etc., and we know from subsequent heat waves that the number of people that actually were affected was much lower. So that building that resilience is quite easy, but you have to actually think through it. So London now is much better at dealing with heat waves. Again, the 2018 heat waves that we had were almost the same as 2003, but we didn't have the same massive uh, reaction. So the heat wave in London was... A shocking event. Uh, it was something which did capture the headlines. Um, but um, it seems that the trajectory that we're on now is for a warmer and warmer world. That's what the, the, the science tells us. But it seems that a lot of people struggle to understand why there is this sort of lag effect between carbon emissions and increases in global temperature. And I was wondering if you could explain to, to a non-expert audience, why are we locked into a degree of warming, what, what are the implications, the governance implications of, of this lag in terms of climate stabilisation? So the problem is that it's one of those strange things which is unlike a normal transaction whereby you would do something and you get an instant reaction back. So for example, I want some goods, I pay for them, I bring it back. Actually, the climate system is a bit like your credit card. So you're basically buying something but you don't have to pay later. In exactly the same way, when we put CO2 in the atmosphere, because there is a lag, there is inertia in the natural system, what happens is that the full heating capacity of that extra greenhouse gases will take perhaps another 10 years to be uh, seen in its totality. And so what it means is what we're doing today is actually going to influence what happens in the next decade or two and therefore, what we're doing is we're already damaging future generations by what we're doing today. And that's a really hard concept to actually get round, because what it means is we're now planning. We have to deal with climate change now to actually modify it in 10 or 20 years time. 
And of course, with our political system that actually now deals in a five-year cycle or in the United Kingdom, a yearly system, you know, sort of uh, we're getting to that sort of sort of type of uh, elections, that decadal thinking doesn't work in Western democracies. What would a proactive Western democracy look like? So a proactive Western democracy, interestingly enough, I would say started or should have started with Margaret Thatcher's speech to the UN in 1989. She was a trained chemist. She was uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And she stood up at the UN in 1989 and said, climate change is a major issue. And she used the word climate change, not global warming. So she was already a good 10 years ahead of her time. And she spent 30 minutes explaining to world leaders why this was important and why they should deal with it. You had George Bush Sr. echoing that uh, sentiment in the same year, telling people to do something about it. And then we've had 30 years of lack. So we already had that ready in democracy to actually do something. But the problem is that there's been a systematic lobbying against action because of the idea that fossil fuels are good for us and therefore actually we can deal with a bit of climate change. And so there's been this 30 years of delay, which didn't help that we also had the financial crash, all of which have mean that people focused on short-term ambitions instead of long-term societal and global ambitions. Although the financial crash did put a dent into carbon emissions in the short term. But Unfortunately, okay. only only in the very short term. So uh, the there is a small dip in the global emissions of carbon dioxide uh, from the financial crash, but within four years it was back on track. So the problem with the global economic system is that it's very resilient; it bounces back, and therefore we actually got no f- gains for the environment for that actual financial crash. And at the moment, I understand that we're on a trajectory to cross 1.5 degrees around 2035. Is that correct? So the problem is, at the moment, we are still increasing CO2 into the atmosphere. So last year, 2018, increased by 2.7%. This year, we think it will be uh, the same. We'll have the numbers in uh, in the spring. But we think it's going to be about 3% increase again. And so the problem is that this decade, we've increased CO2 in the atmosphere more than the previous decades. And the problem there is we're now looking at a 2020 when we're supposed to actually stop the increase and actually start dropping global emissions by anything from 5 to 10% per year, which seems a bit odd when we're already continuing to increase. So there is a real juxtaposition between what the global economy is doing and what scientists and politicians actually want it to do. So Margaret Thatcher, a controversial figure, but nevertheless perhaps one of the first major climate change advocates on the global stage. So if we cast our minds back to the 1980s, some think that was the last chance we really had to, to manage climate change in a controlled fashion, and that chance has been lost. And it's not as if the oceans have just recently filled up with plastic um, or that we've suddenly begun to experience massive biodiversity loss. So I suppose one question is, why wasn't there more pressure to make significant changes to lifestyles then? And why weren't scientists more vocal in making the case for 
rapid, far-reaching measures in the early 90s? So I think you have to look at how the communication works. So scientists have, from 1989 onwards, been very vocal, very clear about the risks of climate change. They have had major IPC reports, which have basically got more and more science, and we have got more certainty, and therefore the actual terminology has got clearer and clearer with each one. Most interesting is, of course, that the actual executive summary of each one of those IPCC reports is signed off by 193 countries of the UN. So it's actually not only pure science, it is also a political declaration of what the science is at that moment in time. So what has changed is the translation of those warnings into the public consciousness. And so one of the key things is that we've had to fight continually a pushback by the climate change deniers. Now, this can be soft, this can be hard, this can be through the uh, fossil fuel industry lobbying, this can be uh, through political parties trying to lobby, and there can be also that whole thing of denial, which is, well, we're insignificant, humans really can't change the climate that much. And so this has been a real issue. We got to 2009, Copenhagen, and there was a huge global movement to actually uh, change and actually make meaningful cuts. But that was all then swept aside by the great economic crisis and Obama coming in and going, we'll just do some side deals. So the problem is that the voices of the scientists have always been very clear, consistent, but the opposition, which is fossil fuel industry-led, politically-led, and incredibly well-funded, then when you have a media that actually is then just trying to push the opposite, then you have a real issue. But things have really changed in the last year or so. Can you expand on that? Certainly. Again, I think what has happened is that there have been a number of key movements that have actually taken off. So firstly, again, politics is personality-driven. So having somebody like Greta Thunberg coming in and actually saying, right, we're going to strike as young people every month. Being able to do that, having young people take a day off school and say, I'm sorry, you mature people, you adults, you politicians, look at the science. Why aren't you doing something? That's incredibly shocking to the political system. Secondly, you've got things like Extinction Rebellion coming along. Uh, basically disrupting things all around the world, going, we're going to agitate and we're going to be like little mini terrorists until you actually take the environment and what you're doing to it seriously. But then on top of that, you've got some incredible changes in the politics. So Paris was a seminal change. Because firstly, all countries signed that they were going to try to ensure that global temperatures were kept to two degrees, and there was an aspirational target that will keep them to one and a half degrees, considering we've already hit one degree, okay? So that was an aspirational target. But that meant it let the scientists off the leash. So straight away, the scientists sat down and went, right, we can now be commissioned to write a one and a half degree report. So this report that came out in 2018 said, if you want to save the world, this is how you do it. This is the radical cuts you need. You need to get to zero global emissions by 2050. 
And then after that, you need to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere for the rest of the century. And then you can have your political uh, goal of one and a half degrees. They also linked it in the first time there is real politics in the actual science. They linked it directly to the sustainable development goals and said, if you're going to make these changes, they will have positive effects on these goals but negative effects on these goals. So you need to match the two together to make sure that you're making a better world and a safer world at the same time. You can't do them divorced. You then had this year the land report, which then said, right, okay, we use land for everything. About 25% of all the land in the uh, world is used for humans, whether it's agriculture, settlements, uh, logging, all of that. Now, let's have a look at the impacts we're having on the land and let's look at the impacts that climate change will have on the land that's actually going to influence whether we're going to have enough food, enough resources into the future. So these are hard-hitting reports that are literally just supporting all of this uh, huge new movement. You've got political parties now saying climate change is one of the major agendas that we have to deal with because the people require it. And again, interestingly enough, if you look at the UK election... Some of the manifestos have incredible changes that they want to do to the fossil fuel base of the United Kingdom. So things are really changing and people, I don't, I don't think, have conceived how radical the changes are already. So there's lots we could pick up on there. I read that you were pleasantly surprised that your daughter became involved in the recent climate strikes. Yeah. And I'd be interested to, to ask, you know, what is the role of the younger generation, especially those who aren't old enough to vote? And some people in the media and elsewhere have resisted the role of young people mm-hmm. as agents of change, saying it's just not their responsibility or they shouldn't be burdened with that responsibility. Others argue that Greta Thunberg and others risk being co-opted by political or media interests, or whatever it may be. What's your view on the moral force of youth action? Right. So I think the really interesting thing is the older generations have no concept of the newest generation. Okay? They have no concept of how they think. They have no concept of how they actually engage with each other, the whole social media, the whole being networked in. This is the first globalized generation. Okay? All the other generations have limited access or limited knowledge. This is the first fully globalised generation that realises, A, how small the world is, B, how easy it is to communicate with all the 7.7 billion people in the world, and they also get their information from different sources. So one of the interesting things about my daughter was, I don't take my work home, okay? The idea of me walking home and going sort of like, Oh, hi, Dad. Um, how's the world? Well, I'm sorry, it's still screwed, but I'm working on it, OK? Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're all going to burn up, but I really, really am working on it. So I don't take my work home. So when she turned around and said, Daddy, I want to go on the climate strike, I was pleasantly surprised. I went, oh, wow, this is brilliant, you know, great. And then I had those doubts. Is it because of me? Are there daddy issues? Is she just doing this because she wants to please daddy, the climatologist? And I started to get stressed. So, of course, unlike a normal parent, did I sort of like uh, decide to uh, question her? Well, sort of. I basically wrote a blog about it and interviewed her, you know, as you do as an academic. So I wrote a blog about it. And the really interesting thing was the information did not come from me. 
Okay, there's this brilliant phrase that she has where she says, well, I get my information from my teachers, I get it from my friends, I get it from Netflix and the BBC, only if I really must, I sometimes ask you. Okay, that was the final line. <laughs> oh, right, in there. But the interesting thing is the reason she was going on the strike is because they, as a generation, realise this is a science issue. They understand the science. They get that there are solutions, solutions that could make a better world anyway, and they don't understand the older generation not implementing them. And this is the brilliant thing about youth is that you can see a better future and you can see the solutions but you don't see the complexity you don't see the why can't you and actually the interesting thing about particularly right-wing and climate change deniers basically saying oh no 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 no, you're, you're your children you shouldn't have an opinion or Greta Thornburg you're just being used by the media now that's a soft type of climate change denial I mean people have called it climate sadism because what they do is they attack a weak opposition by uh, mentioning sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, medical issues of uh, Greta Thunberg, or basically saying, well, how do children know? You know, and they, they should listen to their adults. And again, the children are turning around going, yeah, except you're not doing anything positive, and actually you're just doing it for your own good. So there's a real interesting uh, power relationship going on there. So, yeah. And I have to say, it was probably more scary interviewing my daughter than it was uh, sort of uh, Al Gore when I interviewed him for uh, a blog as well. <laughs> uh, you've spoken in the past about how we're ushering into a post-capitalism era. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the sort of determination of this next generation will expedite our society moving into this new era that maybe isn't as consumeristically focused? Right. That is a huge question and has multiple heads like a hydra. Um, so the first thing is that if we are to solve climate change, I personally think we do not have time for the revolution. So at the moment, we now have to use every political tool we have, depending on what sort of country you live in, what sort of uh, leadership, what sort of power base you have, and we need to instigate all the changes now. So if you are a fully signed up uh, capitalist society and believe full uh, heartily in the neoliberal sort of ideal, absolutely brilliant. Therefore, remove all subsidies from fossil fuels and let the market basically drive renewables. Tick. If you happen to be in a more sort of uh, a dictatorial, top-down type society, then put lots of regulation and then enforce change. We need those changes now because we need the CO2 to drop. What we need to do in a more longer term uh, approach is actually have a more sustainable global economy. So we need to work out how by 2050 we can make sure that there are there will be 10 billion people on the planet. How do we make sure that they have access to uh, decent shelter, uh, decent food, decent clean water? healthcare, and also, which is really important, aspirations for them and their children. So this is something you have to actually build into any society, which means we have to think about consumerism, about how we actually use, uh, how much stuff we use, and how we can actually rebalance that. Because the problem is that if everybody 
gets a Western lifestyle, such as the United Kingdom, Germany, or even America, then we do not have enough energy or enough stuff in the world to actually fuel that sort of uh, type of society. So there is a real need to shift that society and how we actually perceive humanity into the future. So I just want to, before we move into the future, perhaps yes. just refl- pause and reflect on this moment. Mm-hmm. So how vital is the next decade? Um, and your work on denial is really interesting because you say that climate denial is now kind of shape-shifting taking on different, more subtle, perhaps more insidious forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems that's one key challenge that needs to be exposed and, and, and dealt with, and perhaps you could expand a bit on that. Yeah. Um, but also in the governance scholarship, what we're seeing now beginning to come through the discussion is that we are at risk of moving from a distributed politics paradigm, so the annex one kind of paradigm of who gets what, when, who pays, to an existential political paradigm where it's really about whose lifestyle gets to survive. And there's a lot of concern among some of the climate governance scholars around that. I'm curious to get your thoughts, whether that's alarmist, whether that's a useful kind of framing of a possible paradigm shift. Right. Okay, so if we start off with looking at climate denial, Okay, so I think that's really important. And I think when we're looking back in history, this will be something that scholars will be looking at and saying, how comes they had so much power? So at first, and I have to say for the last 30 years, the main attack has been the science. The science isn't very clear. The scientists aren't sort of like uh, all uh, agreeing. There's some doubt. Uh, perhaps CO2 isn't as much uh, as important as it should be. And all of that really is false. And so the science has been very clear and uh, very vocal for the last sort of like 25 to 30 years saying this is the science. Again, we've known about the CO2 effect from uh, the late 1800s. So it's not a new phenomenon. But we're now moving into a new, more subtle phase. So you get things like there's the economic argument, which is now, okay, climate change is real, but it's going to cost us too much money to deal with it now, but actually we'll be richer in the future. Perhaps we can deal with it then, which then makes some uh, real interesting economic arguments. And this is where real battle is actually uh, occurring between leading economists who win Nobel Prizes saying the four-degree world is probably the optimum for the actual uh, economy and scientists going, you have no idea what a four-degree world looks like. Are you really serious? So there's a battle line drawn between economists and the scientists in climate change now. You then have some more subtle things, which is then people go, well, perhaps a, a warmer world would be better. And so that's the humanitarian argument, which is, don't worry, you know, sort of like everything was sort of like, it might actually be better. And we know that's absolutely false. The extreme weather events, uh, when they talk about warmer weather being better, really? 40% of the people live in the tropics. Having days over 50 degrees is not good, okay? So, you know, there's a whole northern western sort of uh, hemisphere type view of the world. And then the last one uh, is probably the political one, which is, well, why should we do anything? China's not going to do anything. 
and they're much bigger polluter than us. So it's the shifting the blame to somebody else and some other political regime because we're not doing anything wrong. And the last one is then the denial of crisis, which is, no, 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 there's no crisis. You know, yeah, we don't have to listen to Greta. We can do things calmly. We don't have to react. And this delaying tactic is interesting because every major societal change, there's always that voices that says we shouldn't. Slavery. No, 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 we shouldn't end slavery now. You know, perhaps we should do in the future. But at the moment, you know, actually it's good for the economy. Uh, Same-sex marriage, uh, women's votes. You can name every single major societal change. And there's always voices going, no, 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 no. We just keep it as it is. Actually works okay. We can do it in the future. And that's exactly what's happening now with climate change, which is they're saying, no, 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 well, it is a crisis, but we can delay it and we can deal with it in the future. Don't panic now, etc. Which, again, is false. And it gives a false sense of security when actually we need to do everything we can now to deal with greenhouse emissions. So I, I realise I loaded up that question. Yes, yeah, so I, I only think, answered one bit because yes. I wasn't going to answer the other bit. Yeah, <laughs> but the, I, I think because we, you, you use lots of long words that none of us understand. Yeah, so I'll try and, <laughs> I'll try and ask it again in you know, using shorter words, perhaps. So, um, so what I'm curious to ask, Mark, is just <laughs> yeah. how vital is this moment in time? How vital is this next 10 years? And it seems like sometimes we're getting conflicting information because you hear about the potential tipping points being crossed and so on. Like what what needs to be done in the next 10 years? So, it's always difficult to answer the question, how important is the next decade? Because when you're living in it, it feels like the most important. Mm. What is a shame is because if we're dealt with this, i.e. climate change, at the beginning of the 1990s, actually the problem would be a lot less difficult to deal with. So the problem is, by keep putting it off, it means what we have to do is more and more extreme. So had we dealt with it, say, from uh, Copenhagen, that would have been brilliant, 2009. We've lost another 10 years. So the reason why I think scientists, activists, and a lot of political commentators and politicians are now saying, this is now the decade we have to actually act on, is because of the trajectory. If we can change the trajectory, if we can change the direction of the this huge ship called the global economy and just gently start nudging it towards low carbon, then we have actually a way of modifying the future to the extremes that we have already uh, predicted. And so, for example, one of the key things in the one and a half degrees report is 2020 is seen as the year when we need to start dropping CO2. And the key thing there is scientists will tell you what are the consequences of not doing something. So if we want a one and a half degree world, the slower we turn the ship round, the slower we drop the actual CO2 globally, and the later we hit uh, zero the more we have to suck out of the atmosphere for the rest of the century. So it's a, it's a sort of balancing act. The more we do now, which is then cheaper, quicker and easier, the less we have to do in the future when we have to suck out tons and tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere, 
which A, we don't have the technology to do, and B, probably the only meaningful way of doing that is massive reforestation, which we should do anyway, but that's not going to be the full solution. That's a good sidestep from your question, wasn't it? <laughs> so you're quite a unique academic because you um, are oh yeah. uh, <laughs> quite interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that the singularity of uh, the components of our global governance system is an issue? And what would an interdisciplinary global governance system look like? Right. So the big problem we have is that, firstly, academic disciplines separate themselves into silos. And therefore, the problem is they don't talk among each other. There are some unique uh, events when uh, academics are brought together. So, for example, the Lancet report where we brought together all the academic fields at UCL and we wrote a report on global health and climate change. That came out with some really stark and novel things because medics were assuming that climate change was about more doctors and more hospitals and diseases and actually turned out to be about billions of people not having enough food or water. So really big simplistic shifts. So I think firstly we need to have a lot more people that change and jump between or can work in multiple fields. So I, I'm quite happy working on the global green economy. I'm happy working on conflict data. I'm happy working on climate data. And I think we need lots of people like that to work across that. I think we also have a problem in a lot of uh, democracies that we don't have a balanced voice in the political system from all the different disciplines. You find that certain disciplines and certain subject areas will go into politics and you don't have the same sort of uh, thought pattern. Different subjects bring different thinking. It's really interesting if you look at, say, uh, different countries such as China uh, or Korea, you find that a lot of the politicians are engineers or they have a natural science background. And that gives them a very different view and a more rational, logical way of looking at things, which means if there's a problem, they then go out and go, right, scientists, what is the solution? And then they instigate that change. And I think we have strayed away from that sort of uh, base. So the rational decisions aren't necessarily made in Western democracies because they don't have that background of rational, logical thought. And the more we can get people into that system, the better, I think. So I think a lot of time when people think of global governance, they think of the UN. And of course, right now, COP25 is happening in Madrid. And I was wondering if perhaps you could give us some insight into your experience engaging with those kinds of intergovernmental negotiating forums, any insights into what those tense negotiations, which apparently are going on right now, mm -hmm. what they actually look like from perhaps a, the scientist perspective. So I have to say I have to be very careful here because unfortunately scientists have a particular worldview and they don't necessarily get politicians and they certainly don't get policy makers in some respects. So I've been to COP meetings and had uh, side events where science is presented. This is the end of the earth. This is how bad it is, etc. And then you have some of the negotiators coming in and basically being really excited because they've got one sentence agreed by all countries. 
And so the, there is a different level of expectation. There is the scientists, the medics, and all the people that are, are there to try and actually get meaningful change going, this is where we have to do, this is this huge problem. And you've got the negotiators down here going, yeah, but we've got all 193 countries to agree to this phraseology. So the, the offset is huge. Um, and again, I think what is frustrating is that the lack of ambition because negotiators are so used to making small little uh, uh, changes, etc., and seeing it as a competition. So therefore, I'm not going to change that because they're not going to change it. So again, I think the problem is it's changing a mindset. And trying to actually change a mindset where you get 193 countries going, right, okay, we're all going to do loads of things. Who can do it faster? And the weird thing is what I don't understand is actually, if you look at the economics, the global green economy, according to our calculations, in 2016 was $8 trillion a year. It was in America, it employs 9.5 million people. That's 10 times the fossil fuel industry. So if you are a straight economist going, how am I going to make my country richer? You would just put all your eggs into the sort of like green uh, economy basket and go, let's go for it. And this is what I was trying to argue when I was discussing things in Korea. It's like, you are at the leading edge. This is the new leading edge. This is where you need to go. So there seems to be a disconnect between what is really happening in the global economy, where the money really is going to be made, and then policymakers and the way governments are actually thinking. And there seems to be that disconnect, and we need to somehow actually bring economists, scientists, and policymakers together and go, right, if you're going to drive a sustainable global economy where everybody gets richer and everybody feels better off, this is how you need to do it. And the problem is scientists go, well, it's really logical. Look, you just do this, this, this. And then, of course, you get policymakers go, well, it's not that simple. It's much more difficult. We have to negotiate it. Yeah, I mean, as a governance scholar, I'm very interested to ask, you know, is the Paris Agreement enough? And there's an awful lot of fanfare around the Paris Agreement as a model for 21st century governance. It's entirely voluntary. It emphasises bottom-up processes. Mm -hmm. It emphasises experimentation. All of that is great where there's cooperation, where there's consensus, where market mechanisms can kick in unhindered. Um, I'm curious to ask, from your point of view, is, is the Paris Agreement enough? Is it a long-term agreement? Or is it actually a short-term agreement masquerading as a long-term agreement? Well, does, so to rephrase that, does right. the Paris Agreement need teeth? Okay, so history. Copenhagen was supposed to be the great leap forward, okay? We had the Kyoto Protocol, we were going to have Kyoto 2, we were going to have a step up in ambitions. Copenhagen completely failed, okay? Completely failed and was uh, undermined by the Americans because basically they had access to everybody's Dropbox. So they knew exactly what everybody was negotiating. So they came in and basically took the BRICS countries to one side and said, oh, well, we can just do a nice friendly agreement between us all, okay? Totally, totally screwed the whole system, okay? So we rebuilt over six years. So the Paris was what Copenhagen should have been, but six years too late, okay? So that's the first thing. So Paris is an amazing get out of jail free card, okay? So we, we really have upped the ante. But you're right. One of the key questions is, should it be voluntary? 
But the problem is that under international law, even if it was a legally binding target, what does that actually mean in international terms? You know, sort of, again, there is, uh, there is really, in actual practical terms, no difference between a legally binding international target and a voluntary one. There really isn't, because you're not actually going to be able to uh, put sanctions against a country because they haven't made something. So legal scholars are saying, well, is there a difference? Is it, uh, does it go further enough? No. At the moment, if all the pledges are uh, done, we would, might get to three and a half degrees. So we might actually pull down the most extreme, but it's nowhere near the two degree target, and it's certainly nowhere near the one and a half degree. So is it a starting point? Yes. And the big problem is that we've had 30 years of these negotiations. Something has to actually accelerate and change that. And that really means that major power bodies within the UN need to up their aspirations and start really throwing their weight around. And there's only three major lobby groups that you could do that. USA, Europe and China. So if you can get any two of those, or preferably all three of those, going in the same direction at a really fast pace, then you could really see Paris having teeth in it. Perhaps just to ask or explore an yes. example, uh, is a global enforcement apparatus necessary to ensure that the outliers, the rogue actors, actually do comply with with a global climate program? And the example might be Bolsonaro. I mean, you have the Amazon. It's the, the largest terrestrial carbon sink mm-hmm. in the world. It's under threat. Um, is that indicative of the failure of the multilateral system? Does that imply that we do need some kind of global enforcement apparatus? Right. I have kind of a follow-up. Sure. Do you, do you think that there is something more effective to ensure compliance than self-preservation? So my view about how countries should be involved in the climate change debate and also how we drive both mitigation and adaptation is by developing a completely new language, which is about win-win. So, for example, I've been in South Korea, and South Korea's power comes from 60 coal-fired power stations. They can constantly have issues with, of course, air pollution. Weird thing is, if they use their technological base and they move to a completely renewable system, they have huge amounts of sun, wind, tidal, hydro, they could completely remove those uh, power stations within, say, uh, 10 to 20 years. They would then clean up their air and that would actually have a huge effect on their health. So it's then building these win-win. Again, why are we spending five billion US dollars on fossil fuel subsidies? Okay, that's according to the IMF if you take into account both the direct subsidies and the climate change damage that they're causing. Why why are we spending that money? If you imagine stripping that money away and actually then spending that on, say, renewables, suddenly you have win-win. So it's moving towards, I think, supporting countries to say, actually, by implementing stuff that's going to help with climate change, you're going to improve both your citizens' health, uh, their economy, uh, and their outlook. And I think that's really important. Again, you mentioned, say, how do we deal with Brazil? Brazil is a really interesting and problematic uh, example because, again, it's their country. 
are we allowed to impose upon them our uh, examples of what we think the environment should be? Now, problem is, of course, it's really problematic to be in the UK and point fingers because, of course, we deforested the whole of the United Kingdom. By 1919, we got down to 5% forest cover. Now, we're back up to about 11 or 12% purely because uh, we set up the Forestry Commission that said we need trees because we need to have the wood for trenches because there might be another war after the First World War. And so we have increased our reforestation. But to actually then turn around and say to Brazil, you can't deforest without any support or any reason or any financial bonus for doing that, I think is problematic. You've spoken about the need for government regulation. Do you feel that there is a political ideology that best suits the stabilization of the Earth's biosphere? That's a huge issue. Uh, The problem is, at the moment, we have a huge diversity of political systems in the world. Okay? And people argue passionately about which one is best and which one is going to be most successful in dealing with sustainable issues. And actually, they're not necessarily the same. Okay, so the idea of personal freedom versus sustainability uh, actually can be in conflict. What I think is important is, for me, moving forward, is the idea of actually putting human rights right at the basis of all political systems. And it's the idea that humans, as a single species on this planet, there must be some set of standards and principles that everybody should uh, adhere to. And again, that is access to shelter, uh, food, water, clean, safe water, and then also the ability to improve themselves and support their family and improve their family. So these are real concepts. And for me, I think one of the interesting ideas that come out, which is if you say people should have access to all of those, well, they should also have access to money. Because again, money is generated by a country and it's really difficult to pin down who's generated the money. So you'll see people saying, oh, my company has generated X amount uh, of millions this year. But actually, when you unpick it, it's like, well, only because there's the taxation that the government collects, so there's all the infrastructure. So actually, all the roads you use, uh, all the educated people you use, which are because of the funded universities, you can then start to unpick that and go, actually, it is the country that's funded all the basic infrastructure for you to be able to then make money. So it's not your money, it's the country's money. So again, you can then start to say, well, hang on. What happens if we say, in a country, everybody should have a basic income? We will say, right, everybody has the right to enough money to live a basic, simple life. Suddenly, all the dynamics change. Because that person, when they're 18, becomes an adult, they can actually uh, take this money. They can do what they want to. They don't have to uh, do what their parents want. They can go to university. Uh, They could become an artist. More mature people can go, actually, I'm stepping out of my job because I need to look after my elderly parents who need real care. Suddenly, the the principle of having to work, otherwise you don't feed yourself or your family, 
drops away and there is a safety net that allows people to try lots of different things. It's also really interesting because, again, it works for a capitalist system really well. Because what we want to develop in uh, dynamic uh, capitalist uh, societies is innovators. We want people to develop new companies. We want people to take risks. But you can't take risks if you're going to starve. So the interesting thing is basic income allows people to go, I'm going to try this new technology. I'm going to try uh, to develop this new company. And I'm not going to take any money out of it because there isn't any. I'm just going to live off the state and see if I can actually do this. So it allows you to have a great uh, change in the innovation of a country. It allows you to have a lot of social care because people will make uh, choices because they can actually care for their local community, their local environment, their own relatives. And also you can have a lot more creative uh, work because people will turn around and go, I'm going to try to be an artist. I'm going to try to be a musician. And then at any point they can go, I'm going to go back to uh, university or I'm going to do an apprenticeship. I'm going to retrain. And actually, weirdly enough, it will probably cost the same, if not less, than the current welfare systems we have in many countries. Again, it means it's a complete change in the way we actually think about money and the right to money and the right to a good life. So I know Philip Alston, the UN Special Rapporteur for Extreme Poverty, has said climate change is the greatest threat that faces human rights this century. And uh, certainly that's something I think we'll be exploring more in the podcast. And also you've discussed the question of universal basic income. And I know that you've also proposed um, turning half the earths into a, 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 a nature reserve. Is that correct? So uh, it's the idea that you mentally separate the earth into half for humanity and half for nature. And therefore you can then look after biodiversity and look after the health of the planet. Uh, the 50-50 split is just a sort of like a way of thinking about it. But it's really important because what we seem to forget is that all our basic systems, soils, uh, our atmosphere, our climate, the water cycling, all of that is actually done by nature, which we're part of. But what we have to do is then actually make sure we care for it. So we have cut down three trillion trees since the beginning of agriculture. So that's half the trees on the planet. So therefore, that's really bad. But it's also good because we know that we can plant another three trillion trees because the planet can sustain that quite happily. And so there's this interesting, weird change because what's happening is even though the population of the world is going up and will probably stabilize about 10 billion by 2050, People are living in more dense settlements. So weirdly enough, even though the population is going up, the world is getting wilder. So therefore, a lot of that wild space, we can now rewild, we can reforest, we can actually start to think about how we actually manage the rest of the world to produce the services that we require to keep and maintain a safe climate and environment for both us, but also all the other organisms on Earth. So it's that idea that we become the custodians of the Earth. We look after it, both for ourselves in a deeply selfish way, which is we need a stable planet, we need a good planet for us, but also we look after it for all the other organisms, and we actually care about things like biodiversity and the diversity of life 
across the whole planet. And so we can do both. And that is why we think of it as a split of a 50-50 split between looking after the planet and looking after ourselves. So I think really identifying these transition pathways is very much in the spirit of what we're trying to do here with the podcast, you know. So instead of grasping after poorly thought through utopias or dystopian visions, we're really trying to identify concrete ways to move forward in a progressive fashion. That means that tomorrow or next year or next decade is a bit better than today. Um, So thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really fantastic. Uh, Such great insights. I'd just like perhaps to ask um, the question that you pose at the end of your book that you've written with, with Simon Lewis, The Human Planet. And the question is, can Homo Dominatus become wise? Huge question. Do, can we earn our own name, Homo Sapien? Can we become wise? For me, I am inspired by the next generation. So the young people are a completely different species to the one that went before, because they have a completely different relationship with technology and with each other. And they, interestingly enough, are, for me, the first globalized generation. They are the new Homo sapiens. They understand how small the planet is. They understand that with touchscreens, with their tablets, with their phones, they can be in contact with any person on the planet. And they are demanding change already, and they're not even adults yet, so they're demanding a better world, they already can see how the world can be much better. And I think that is why the 21st century is when all these changes that have to happen will happen, because firstly, you have this generation that's demanding it, and you also have, I think, older generations that look at their legacy and go, We've got to do this because actually we have not done anything. We need to actually leave a legacy. Otherwise, our children will never forgive us. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Madeline, for your time and your insight. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? My thoughts are that I think that UCL is a fantastic place to have these conversations. Again, you have things like uh, the Institute of Global Governance, you have a really interdisciplinary mixture of both academics and students, and there aren't the same walls. There's still some walls. There aren't the same walls that you find at other institutions. So I think that some of these discussions and the solutions to these huge issues of the 21st century, UCL and students like yourself this is where some of these solutions are going to come from. And I'm always fascinated to see where you and all the other students that I teach and look after are going to end up in the whole world because you're going to be the influencers and the people that are actually going to instigate the change that Tom and I just talk about. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) Hope we can live up to these very high expectations. Um, Where can listeners learn more about your work? So I have a website. Uh, I also write uh, regular articles for the conversation. So if you just type me in. Also, as Tom will know, I'm quite active uh, on Twitter. So I try to put out 
uh, tweets which are uh, meaningful about uh, climate change, uh, sustainable development goals, and actually allow you to have access to different information. Occasionally, I have uh, a few side issues where I start having rants with uh, climate change denies, but for the most part, my uh, Twitter is relatively clean and is uh, where I try to provide as much information I can on climate change. Well, we'll definitely link to that. Thank you again, Mark. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Till next time.